everyone. Well, it's about 15 years to the day that the greatest art robbery in history took place. It happened on a cold and misty night in Boston when two thieves walked into an art gallery and then walked out with with 13 works of art, including most famously the only known seascape by um, Rembrandt, a painting called storm on the sea at Galilee. That painting, along with the others that were stolen, uh, were worth an estimated $300 million and they have never been seen since. How did they pull it off? Well, if you've got movie images of Tom Cruise coming down from the ceiling on wires or Catherine Zeta-Jones doing exotic dancing around infrared lights... um, you couldn't be further from the truth. The robbers simply knocked on the front door, asked to come in, and the security guards opened the door for them. It's because they were dressed as Boston policemen. And so standing in the rain in their fake uniforms and flashing their fake badges and saying that they'd actually turned up to come and protect the museum, the security guards on duty simply opened the door and ushered them in. And the art world has been in mourning ever since. And I'm not too sure any of the guards are still working there. (laughs) I mention this because I don't know whether you remember it or not from a couple of weeks back, but in 2 Timothy, Paul has called on Timothy to be a security guard. He said as much in chapter 1. There in verse 13 he said, While you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Timothy is to be a security guard. And he's guarding something far more precious than a Rembrandt. He's to guard the gospel. He's been called on to step up to the mark and protect the good news about Jesus to make sure that that news doesn't get changed, to make sure it doesn't get distorted or stolen altogether. And that's why last week Paul urged Timothy to stay strong in the grace of Jesus. That if he's going to do his job as a security guard, he's got to stay on duty for the long haul. No use knocking off after a few years. He needs to be on guard for the term of his natural life. And so last week we thought about all those images of being a soldier and farmer and athlete and all those sorts of things which which drummed home the lesson of just what it's going to take to go the distance with Jesus but especially so in Timothy's case because, remember, he's a security guard. And if he's going to be effective in that task, he's actually not just got to turn up for the job, he's got to be especially alert to what's going on because just like that art robbery in Boston, there are people around in Timothy's day who are posing as something that they're not. There are people turning up who on the surface look as if they're there to protect the gospel, but they're actually not. They're there to uh, get something for themselves out of it. And so Timothy's going to need to be especially on guard against them. Now look, that's pretty much what today's passage is all about. Chapter 3 is about certain people whom Paul refers to as evil men and imposters. 
It's about people who are posing as security guards, but they're not really. And Timothy needs to be a wake-up to them. And most of all, he's not to be like them. And so what the, chapter, uh, the, the flow of the chapter is, that Paul firstly warns Timothy that these imposters exist, and then he goes on to explain how Timothy is to be different to them. Firstly, to these imposters themselves, verse 1. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now that phrase, the last days, in the New Testament, that refers to the time period between Jesus' resurrection and his future return. And so it's not just the Apostle Paul and Timothy. We're in the last days as well, which is a little bit alarming because of this terrible list of things that people are going to get up to in this time period. And in particular, did you notice that recurring theme about what people do and don't love? Verse 2, lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Verse 3, without love, that is love of other people. Verse 3 again, not lovers of the good. Verse 4, lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. See, these people are characterised by the very simple fact that they love the wrong things. They love themselves, money and pleasure, and not God, others and the good. In other words, they are self-absorbed. They are into self-gratification. For these people, it's all about making themselves happy. It's all about being, making themselves comfortable. It's all about themselves being entertained. It's all about themselves being fulfilled. It's all about themselves feeling secure. It's all about themselves being titillated. It's all about themselves being highly thought of. Sounds like nowadays, doesn't it? And the really terrible thing, though, is in this case, is that it's all coming under the guise of respectability. Verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. These are people who act godly, but it's a facade. They really are like those guys who robbed the museum in Boston. These are people who are turning up, posing as something that they're not. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrer tells a fairly disturbing story about a national conference in America for church youth workers. It was held in a hotel in the Midwest and youth workers in their hundreds flooded to the hotel, virtually taking up every room. At the end of the conference, the hotel manager informed the conference organisers that the youth conference had broken the record for the number of guests who had tuned into the adult movie station. In other words, more youth pastors turned into the hotel's soft porn station than any other convention in the history of the hotel. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. Have nothing to do with them. But as terrible as all this is, Back in the context of 2 Timothy, it gets worse because these self-absorbed motives of the imposters, it's actually being translated into despicable methods. Verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. That opening phrase about worming their way in, that pretty much sums it up. These are deceptive people. 
They are secretive people. These are people that you're going to need your wits about you if you're going to recognise them, for they are imposters. They don't look like what they really are underneath. And so they work their way into positions of friendship and control and manipulation over vulnerable people. They come in the back door promising much, they leave the front door having delivered nothing. And as such, despite what they might say or despite what they might claim, Paul goes on to point out that they are in fact opposed to God. And he draws that out by comparing them to two blokes from the Old Testament whom he names. Interestingly though, those two people that are named there, they don't actually appear in the Old Testament, at least the name doesn't. And it's generally taken to refer to the magicians who opposed Moses when, remember when Moses went to Pharaoh to ask Israel uh, to ask him to let Israel go and there were magicians from the from the court of Pharaoh who opposed him well that's the two people that that uh, Paul mentions here uh, Janus and Jambres and Jambres and you see he's making the point that these imposters are just like those jokers back in Moses's time they claim to have power they claim to have authority they claim to be able to do stuff But in fact, for all their talk, they were opposed to God. Hopeless men who love nothing but the right, who who love everything but the right thing. They are self centered spiritual weasels who manipulate others to promote themselves. Their motives are corrupt, their methods are despicable. They are men of depraved mind who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Harsh words. Verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching. And you see, it's with that phrase, you, however, that the passage now spins and it moves from a description of these godless imposters to a description of how he wants Timothy to be a godly protector and that he expects Timothy, both in terms of his motives and his methods, to be the exact opposite of the people that he has just described. And so firstly, in terms of motives, Whereas the imposters were characterised by selfishness, Timothy is to be characterised by selflessness. And Paul offers himself as an example of this. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. You don't have to read much of the New Testament before you realise that the Apostle Paul went through an awful lot for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The guy worked long hours. The bloke made sacrifices. He got tired. He got arrested. He got shipwrecked. He faced ridicule. He faced uh, confrontation. The guy got beaten up. And he wants Timothy to be like that too. Paul wants Timothy to love Jesus enough that he'll be prepared to get hurt over it. And make no bones about it, Paul says you're going to get hurt, verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we are meant to see that this is so opposite to the guys that we read about in the first half of the chapter. Remember then, they were lovers of self and that meant that they chased after pleasure. Timothy is to be a lover of Jesus. Timothy is to be a lover of godliness. And that'll mean not chasing after pleasure, but perhaps putting up with persecutions. 
And it's not just in his motives then that Paul wants Timothy to be the opposite. It's his methods as well. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learnt and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learnt it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The imposters, remember, they're driven by selfishness and that leads them into uh, deceitful and manipulative techniques and methods. Timothy, however, is to be driven by godliness and that will lead him into the simple, plain, straightforward teaching of the truth. He is to continue in exactly what he has learnt. Which is, well, what's he grown up with? What's he been trained in? What's he become convinced of? Verse 15, it's the scriptures, isn't it? It's the Bible. That is what Paul wants him to stick with. Don't go off into other persuasive, trendy techniques. Just stick with the Bible. And he gives two reasons why that's a good thing to do. Reason number one we just heard in verse 15, it's because it's the scriptures that make you wise for salvation. But there's a second reason that follows in verse 16. Or scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, Paul's pointing out that amazing things happen when we read our Bibles. God speaks to us. And people get saved and people get changed for the better. For as Paul puts it, it's in our Bibles that we have God-breathed words, God-inspired words, which can shape us and change us. More than that, thoroughly equip us for not some good works, for every good work, which is a big statement, every good work. Everything good that God expects of you, the Bible can get you ready for. That as we day after day read the Bible, God in his word speaks to us, spends time with us. And especially as God's spirit works in us, what happens is that we start to see things from God's perspective. As we read what God says to us in his word, we start to find satisfaction in the things that God finds satisfaction in. As the Spirit keeps working God's word on us, we start to look at life from God's perspective and we get shaped and we get changed and we get transformed and we get prepared and we get equipped for every good work. And friends, I don't think you have to be an Einstein to see that it's at this point that today's passage carries with it a really important lesson for us because it is telling us that if you're here this morning and you're one of Jesus' followers who wants to be equipped for every good work, if you're interested in pleasing God in the way that you live, if you want a God-shaped life, well, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read the Bible. Which is a truth that's easy to overlook because in one sense it doesn't sound all that exciting, does it? Reading the Bible, I've heard that before. But it's worth hearing again. And making the priority to slice out a time in our busy life to read the Bible, it, it can sound, that, that sounds a little boring. But Paul is telling Timothy that nothing could be further from the truth. For reading the Bible will get us ready to do the good that God wants us to do. Read the Bible. Value it. 
During this week, I read a really interesting little illustration that the Christian Democrat Party uh, published on the internet. Some of you may have uh, read it or seen it, but it compares the way we value the Bible perhaps to the way that we value our mobile phones. Here's how it goes in part. Have you ever wondered what would happen if we treated our Bibles as valuable as we treated our cell phones? Imagine if we carried our Bibles around in our purses or pockets all the time. Imagine if we turned back to go and get our Bibles if we ever forgot them. Imagine if we flipped through our Bibles several times a day. Hey, what if we used our Bibles to receive text messages? What if we treated our Bibles like we just couldn't live without them? What if we gave Bibles to our kids as presents? What if we used our Bibles in a case of an emergency? Just imagine what would happen if we treated our Bibles with half the importance that we attach to our mobile phones. Bears thinking about See, the Bible, it's readily available, but that can fool us. We start to lose sight of its preciousness, but it is precious. It is God's inspired word to us that prepares us for every good work. And even more than that, specifically for this morning, reading our Bibles can help us and it can help this church family safeguard the gospel. Because remember, this is a chapter all about Timothy being a security guard. And the whole chapter is, war- is a warning to stay away from imposters during the last days. Well, you and I, we're in the last days. And so chances are this is an alert that we need to hear as well. And sure, we're not in exactly Timothy's shoes, but we also have a role to play in our neck of the woods to guard the gospel. And there is no way that we're going to be able to do that unless we are spending time in the Bible, immersing ourselves in the Scriptures. Because, friends, if the only Bible input you get is from me on a Sunday, or maybe for a bit over an hour in a small group during the week, that is so dangerous. If you're not spending time in the Bible yourself and engaging your mind over the text, you will have no idea whether I'm leading you up the garden path on a Sunday morning. You will have nothing to compare me to. You've got to keep reading your Bibles. We've got to keep talking about the Bible with each other. We've got to keep reading books about the Bible, listening to the Bible on tapes and CDs. got to keep testing what I or whoever is up here. We've got to keep testing what they are saying against the Bible. It was great to hear Greg say that he's, got a, he's in a small group that reads ahead so as to keep me honest. Because even if, I've, even if I've been saying biblical things in the past, don't assume that I'm going to keep saying them into the future. For no matter how entertaining a speaker can get, no matter how interesting the stories they may throw out, no matter how noteworthy the reputation, no matter how close the friendship you might have with them, we need to make sure that it is ultimately the scriptures and not the speaker that we are paying attention to. And every Sunday, you ought to be leaving this building after the Bible talk. You ought to be leaving the building thinking, well, of course, that's what the Bible says. That is so clearly and so obviously what the Bible says. And if you don't leave with that level of confidence in what's been taught, you need to leave with great suspicion. Because it is the scriptures that is God's word. 
to equip us. I started with a story about an art gallery, let me, uh, an art robbery, let me finish with another one. This involves a painting called Portrait of a Lady, which was stolen from an Italian art museum. What makes this robbery noteworthy, though, was that evidently no one knew the painting was even missing after the robbery. It wasn't until someone found the empty frame lying on the roof that they realised that something wasn't quite right. And it was only then that anyone noticed the robbery, which is extraordinary. A priceless treasure went missing. No one even noticed. I'm wondering if that's exactly what's happening in church after church after church after church. The gospel of Jesus has gone missing and no one's even noticed it. And so I'm telling you, you go into some churches on a Sunday and you'll hear a great message about how to fulfil your potential and the importance of social welfare and how to be a success at life and how to be a loving and accepting sort of person. And don't get me wrong, all those things are important and have their place and the gospel of Jesus actually does impact on all of those things. But in lots of churches, it's as if that issue has drifted onto centre stage and the gospel of Jesus... The news of Jesus rescuing us from sin, the news of death being destroyed and Jesus bringing us life and immortality, it's as if that message has just drifted off stage. And yet no one in the churches seems to have noticed. They still think that they're a Christian church, but it's just that they don't talk much about the real Jesus anymore. And the scriptures that make us wise for salvation... They don't get to seem to be spoken about too much. And it really is exactly like that robbery in the Italian art gallery. A treasure has been snatched away right from under people's noses. And no one has even noticed. Friends, that must never happen here. And sure, there are people like Wayne and Alan and Paul and I, as the main Bible teachers at DPC, we have a really important role in ensuring that. And the weight of a passage like, that, like this rests heavily on us. But we all have a role to play in this. We've got to keep reading our Bibles. We've got to keep talking with each other about the Bible. We've got to keep testing what is being taught here on a Sunday from the Bible. For we are living in the last days and this is a terrible time. For people are lovers of everything but the right thing. But we, however, need to continue in what we have learnt. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Want to be thoroughly equipped? Read the Bible. I'll pray.